angel. For he that receives my servants receives me. TNC 82, paragraph 17. The word servants in this context means angels. Angel is derived from the Greek word. Yellows. Which means messenger. The messenger must bring a message from the Lord. It does not matter if the messenger is mortal. The word describes a category of messenger that includes not only premortal and postmortal spirits, but also living men. When anyone, man or angel, is entrusted with a message from God, the message is God's. God makes no distinction between the messenger and himself. And now I have spoken the words which the Lord God hath commanded me, Mosiah 1, paragraph 18. The angel added nothing. He hid nothing. He delivered what the Lord told him to deliver. These are not merely the words of an angel. Because the angel certifies they originated from God, they are the words of God, CTNC 54, paragraph 7. Joseph explained that all angels either have or do belong to this earth, but there are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. Their status as angel comes from the fact they have met with God, received their assignment and authority from him, and deliver only the message he instructs should be delivered. They are in his service, and the message is confined to what he has told them to do. Angels minister to mankind and confer power, light, and truth. They prepare one to receive the Lord. Neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. For behold, they are subject unto him, to minister according to the word of his command, shewing themselves unto them of strong faith and a firm mind in every form of godliness. And the office of their ministry is to call men unto repentance, and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father which he hath made unto the children of men, to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, that they may bear testimony of him. And by so doing, the Lord God preparateth the way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts, according to the power thereof. And after this manner bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men. Moroni 7, paragraph 6, angels minister to chosen vessels or mortal messengers, as the three Nephites did with Mormon and Moroni, see Mormon 4, Paragraph 2. Then these vessels testify and bear testimony so that the way is prepared that the residue of men may have faith in Christ. These three visited with Mormon, but the people to whom Mormon ministered didn't see them. They ministered to Moroni, and those to whom Moroni ministered didn't see them. The chosen vessels also become as ministering angels. Many people have received ministering angels. Men, women, and children have, can, and do receive angelic ministers. Angels minister to those with faith, then they are supposed to preach salvation to others. Appearances of angels, like the post-resurrection ministry of Christ, happen with the faithful. Christ appeared as a resurrected minister only to the faithful in Jerusalem. Likewise, he showed himself to the more righteous who had been spared among the Nephites. Angel of Light
A servant or messenger of God whose presence or appearance is characterized not only by his or her light, but by the content and intelligence of the message, as well as the absence of darkness. To avoid deception, we must have light. Light comes to all by keeping God's commandments. See TNC 93, paragraph 9. The defect Moses perceived in Lucifer when Lucifer came tempting him, as stated in Genesis 1, paragraph 3, was not merely his appearance. Satan was, and is, an angel. TNC 69, paragraph 6 describes him as an angel of God who was an authority in the presence of God and was cast down. Such a being does not look vile. Visually, he may appear to have light and glory. Because he is a liar, he uses his appearance as a pretense to be an angel of light. Moses was able to discern between Satan and an actual messenger from God, but that had nothing to do with the appearance of Satan. It was because of the content of the message. Moses distinguished between his message and the Lord's. The Lord's was a message of glory, which is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Satan's message takes one into a dark and dreary waste. Anger Those who become angry at the truth have the spirit of the devil in them. That is, they are under the devil's influence and are deceived. Nephi understood this principle because of his older brother's reactions. See 1 Nephi 5, paragraph 1. When someone becomes angry at the truth, they are in darkness. Christ gave this as one of the signs of the deceived. They argue against the truth and become angry. See 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 8. Those who are Christ's, however, join with Nephi in glorying in plainness, even if it cuts or requires repentance. They appreciate the plain direction which allows them to follow in the true path. They appreciate truth, even when it condemns their acts and requires them to change. They glory in Christ, preferring Him over unbelief, traditions of men, or the arm of flesh. Antichrist those who invite people to follow them and deliberately seek devotees. Those who put themselves up for adoration and worship are mistaken, are practicing priestcraft, are antichrist, and are in the employ of the enemy to mankind's souls. Antichrists are also all those who practice a religion that rejects Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Redeemer of mankind. Any teaching or person who draws us to them and does not point us to the Lord is unable to help us. If they try to supplant Christ as the object of admiration, then they are antichrist and a false prophet. Apostasy A deliberate, intentional, or willful rejection or refusal to accept what God offers to man. A rebellion when mankind limits what they will permit God to reveal, setting boundaries to his teachings, they rebel. But that rebellion only limits themselves. Mankind, whether as a group or a single person, is either gaining, that is restoring, light and truth or losing, that is apostatizing, from light and truth. This world is a world of change. Nothing remains the same. Either growth or decay are at work everywhere. 
they are also at work within every person. One either searches out new truth, finds it, lives it, and thereby becomes restored to truth, or one backs away from it. If one is backing away, losing it, neglecting it, and discarding it, one is in the process of apostasy. With respect to God's people, apostasy is always marked by a change of ordinances and breaking of the covenant. In ancient times, apostasy never came by renouncing the gospel, but always by corrupting it. The great apostasy in the time of the apostles was not a renouncing of faith, but its corruption and manipulation. Apostle The word apostle, from the Greek, Apostolos literally meaning someone sent away, implies that someone with this title is sent to deliver a message. An English equivalent would be messenger. There is no such thing as priesthood called apostle. It is also an office in the LDS church institution, like that of Relief Society president, primary president, or scout leader. It is only an office in that church. Before 1835, the term apostle did not mean 12 men belonging to a quorum. It meant men who were ordained to the high priesthood who had seen Christ. The June 1, 1833 revelation, found in TNC 94, paragraph 4, referred to the school of the prophets as the school of my apostles. The school was to prepare mine apostles. Paragraph 1. However, the identity of the apostles was expansive, including the officers, or in other words, those who are called to the ministry in the church, beginning at the high priests, even down to the deacon, describing those for whom the school of the prophets was to be built. TNC 87, paragraph 1. After an appearance of Christ to members of the school of the prophets, Joseph declared, Brethren, now you are prepared to be the apostles of Jesus Christ, for you have seen both the Father and the Son, and know that they exist, and that they are two separate personages. It was not membership in a quorum, but knowledge that originally defined the meaning of apostle when used in all notes, minutes, revelations, and preaching before 1835. The church originally organized in 1830, like the Book of Mormon Church, had offices of elders, priests, and teachers. Then the term apostle began to be used. But the term apostle did not mean the same thing in institutions then that it does today. A quorum of twelve apostles did not exist in Mormonism until February 1835. Prior to that, many individuals were identified as apostles. The term meant someone sent with a message from God. The term was originally used to identify all the missionaries sent to preach the Book of Mormon and Restoration. The revelations given through Joseph Smith specifically identified a number of men as apostles before the organization of a quorum of twelve apostles in 1835. Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer in 1829 Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1830, and Sidney Rigdon, Parley Pratt, and Lehman Copley in 1831. A series of revelations likewise referred to apostles and included admonitions, instructions, and commandments to different audiences composed of apostles before the organization of a quorum of twelve in 1835. 
The seventy were also regarded as apostles. The New Testament account of what qualifies an apostle included the necessary credential of witnessing Christ's resurrection. See Acts 1, paragraph 6. See also the glossary entry, 12 Apostles. Archangels, the four. There are four great angels who hold power over the four parts of the earth to save life and to destroy. These are they who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, having power to shut up the heavens, to seal up unto life, or to cast down to the regions of darkness. TNC 74, paragraph 8. They are real. They are known as Michael, who is Adam, Gabriel, who is Noah, Raphael, who is Enoch, and Uriel, who is John. They hold control over air, water, fire, and earth, respectively, the four parts of the earth. In spite of their ministry, mankind should not worship them, nor pray to them. Egypt may have identified and understood them better, acknowledging them as the four sons of Horus, but Egypt erred by exalting them to worship and prayer. Along with other heavenly beings the Egyptians called Nidaru and which the Hebrews called angels, these comprised the host of heaven led by Jehovah. The first error God corrected for Moses was this idolatry of angels, who are not to be worshipped but are to be recognized and respected as God's messengers and servants. See Exodus 20, paragraphs 3 to 5. Michael means who is like God. Gabriel means the strength of God. Raphael means the healing of God. And Uriel means the light or fire of the Lord. Ascension There is a relationship between ascension in this life and the right to ascend in the afterlife which is mentioned, but not well explained, in Scripture. There are two ascents. One is temporary and happens when men are caught up but then return to this world. It represents overcoming the world and returning the individual back to the presence of God. It is called redemption from the fall because it brings the individual back into God's presence. Ether 1, paragraph 13. This form of temporary ascent is designed to establish a covenant or promise related to the other, more gradual ascent through development of the individual. The temporary mortal ascent secures a promise for the individual that they will be permitted to make the eternal ascent to where God and Christ dwell in the afterlife. The second form is the actual ascent involving redemption and securing eternal life. It is a methodical process over eons of time to bring those who ascend to reside where God and Christ dwell. See TNC 69, paragraphs 14 and 28. In the King Follett Discourse, Joseph Smith said this, Thus you learn some of the first principles of the gospel about which so much has been said. When you climb a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and go on until you learn the last principle. It will be a great wall before you have learned the last. It is not all to be comprehended in this world. It is a great thing to learn salvation beyond the grave. This is the growth, by degrees, which results in exaltation. Here, then, is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God. 
and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves, to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done, by going from a small degree to another, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you are able to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. The second form of ascent cannot happen in mortality but is accomplished over time. It requires attaining to the resurrection, meaning that death has no claim on this person because he or she merits eternal life. This is what Christ gained in his life and through his sacrifice here. Men are dependent upon his merits to overcome death. But all will have to attain the same thing before they finish the second form of ascent. Christ is the prototype of the saved man and all must be precisely what he is and nothing else or not be saved, according to the lectures on faith, lecture 7, paragraph 9. The first form of ascent is possible for all mortals. The scriptures, in particular the Book of Mormon, contain accounts of those who have ascended to God's presence and overcome the fall of mankind. Many Old Testament prophets did likewise, but their accounts were redacted by the Deuteronomists because of hostility to the doctrine. The reality is that most people, even very good, believing people whose lives are filled with Christian charity and love for their fellow man, are not going to ascend, even temporarily, while they live in this fallen world. The first ascent is covenant-filled. God brings one before him to establish a covenant, assuring the eternal ascent. Most people will ascend over eons of time because the process is based on the determination and commitment people have to follow God and his Christ. Ask The principle of asking and receiving, on the one hand, and the spirit of prophecy and revelation, on the other, are directly related. Without an inquiry, one is not able to receive, for those who are willing to receive always ask. Asking is the way those who already identify themselves for heaven. In 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 6, we have Nephi telling us he desired to know things. He believed God could make them known. And he was pondering the things he was seeking. Then in response to this process, the Lord sent an angel who inquired of Nephi. What ought to stick out most in this passage is that Nephi is now granted an audience with an angel, and the angel is inquiring of him, What desirest thou? He is in the presence of an angel, but before he can learn anything, the angel first asks him, What do you want? That should tell you something of great significance. Heaven responds to inquiries. This is one of those eternal principles. Heaven is controlled by ordained limits or governing principles. Just as we must abide the conditions for obtaining blessings, heaven's help comes in response to ordained limitations, principles, laws, and ordinances. This is why the angel does not launch into a lecture right away. Instead, the angel asks Nephi what he wants to know so the balance and limits are maintained. If you aren't asking, you are sealing the heavens. You disqualify yourself from further knowledge. God did not come in response to Joseph Smith's silent desire to know more. The first vision came as a result of a specific vocal and private prayer in which he asked to know more. When the father and son appeared, the first words spoken were, Joseph, 
This is my beloved son. Hear him. Then nothing further happens until Joseph asked the personages who stood above him in the light, which of all the sex was right. God did not force an answer upon Joseph, nor comment further until Joseph had first asked a question. It is not heaven's responsibility to force upon us answers to questions which we do not ask. Unless we are willing to ask, we will not, in fact cannot, receive. This is why teaching we should not ask to know more of God's mysteries is so pernicious. It is not only false, it limits heaven's ability to provide light and truth to us. We seal the heavens when we comply with such instruction. Nephi asks, I desire to behold the things which my father saw, 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 6. Then the angel asks Nephi whether he believed the things his father had been teaching him. Nephi says he did believe. Indeed, Nephi said he believed all the words of my father. Having now secured from Nephi both a question to answer and a confession of faith in the Lord's spokesman, Nephi's prophet father, the angel reacts with overwhelming joy, and when I had spoken these words, the spirit cried with a loud voice saying, Hosanna to the Lord, the Most High God, for he is God over all the earth, yea, even above all. And blessed art thou, Nephi, because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God. Wherefore, thou shalt behold the things which thou hast desired. 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 6 An angel shouting for joy. Here we have a clear indication of just how much it pleases God and his holy angels when a person finally shows their willingness to receive further light and truth by conversing with the Lord through the veil. It is a rare thing. Heaven rejoices over someone who comes with a question, and with faith, and with a desire to know these things, believing the Lord can make them known. This particular alignment of things is so rare an event heaven cannot contain the joy, exultation, and wonder when it occurs. The heavens long for communion with mankind. The silence which prevails is due to our wickedness and not heaven's unwillingness to open to us. If silence prevails, it is mankind who stopped the dialogue. If asking must precede receiving, and if Joseph Smith was also required to ask before the great revelations of this dispensation were unfolded to him, then all must ask. Failing to ask causes the way to be hedged up and prevents heaven from answering. 